0: Our Father, we are thankful for your touch upon us, individually and corporately. We do thank you for touching Dolores and for giving her strength and that she's able to be with us, and for others, Lord, that have experienced a touch from you even this day. Now, Father, we thank you for the Word of God, for the account of the early years, and for the expression of the mercy of God, even as we study it in this passage this morning. And, Lord, I pray that we will be encouraged, that our faith will be strengthened, that we will recognize that there's no problem too great, no hurdle too high, but what in the strength of the Lord we can achieve what you have called upon us to do. We ask you, Lord, to minister to our hearts today, that we in turn will minister to one another. In Jesus' name, amen. You should have page 24. We're about halfway down 24 and page 25. So that uh, we may get to page 25 today, this morning. Let's read, beginning Genesis chapter 8, verse 13. Genesis 8:13. Now it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Now Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by their families from the ark. That was the passage we were studying last week at the end of class, and we noted that They were in the ark a long time. At least it must have seemed like a very long time to them. And again, I I think it's important for us to try to put ourselves in their place and to think what it might have been to have been inside a structure as small as the ark, as large as the ark, but of course after a while it seems to be very small, uh, for over a year ultimately. And the pressure that was upon Noah... To, to lead them out of the ark as soon as the ground appeared dry. And yet we noted that Noah believed that since God had told him when to enter the ark, God would tell him when to leave the ark. And since God hadn't spoken, Noah remained in the ark. As we noted in the passage this morning, as we read in the passage this morning, it was the 601st year of his life. And they were still in the ark. Why did God keep them in there so long, when, as they looked out, the ground appeared to be dry? Well, the last thing we noted was, of course, certainly it had something to do with the trial of their faith. God allows things into our lives that serve as a trial for our faith. You've heard the illustration many times, certainly, or similar illustrations. If you ever travel to San Francisco and you go over to the coast, You'll notice that along the, uh, the, the beach of San Francisco, there are numerous cypress trees. And those cypress trees are very one-sided. On the side towards the sea, there's hardly anything. But on the side away from the sea, that's where most of the tree is. It tends to be bent over because the wind is constantly blowing in from the sea onto these trees. And I would suspect that if you could dig down, you'd find that the roots of those trees have gone deeply into the soil because the constant pressure on the tree forces the roots deep. And so it is with a trial of our faith. The only way our faith becomes strong is for it to be tested. If there were no trials of our faith, our roots would be very shallow. Many years ago, up in uh, Canby Grove Camp in Oregon, they had a really severe windstorm. And numerous great Douglas firs came crashing down And the reason was, of course, it rarely ever is very windy through there, and the trees have very shallow roots. And then suddenly, with the big wind comes, the big, tall trees came down because they had very little root. And so it would be with us. No matter how great and strong we might appear, if our roots are shallow, our faith is weak. But with the trial of our faith, our roots go down. And sometimes we wonder, how deep, Lord, do you want our roots, right? I'm I'm frequently reminded of the song, uh, Should We uh, Rest on uh, Flowery Beds of Ease As Others Sail the Stormy Seas. Sometimes we feel like it's we who are on the stormy seas. But I I think often of those... I don't know if I've recommended this book before, but if I haven't, uh, let me... or if I have, let me say it again... Uh, There's a book that's been out for maybe 15 years now. It's entitled By Their Blood, and it's the story of 20th century Christian martyrs. It's sort of a fox's book of martyrs for the last 100 years, and it's really a fantastic book, and it it deals with those who have died for their faith and have gone through many uh, serious uh, trials of faith in the last 100 years, and it's surprising to discover how large the number is. Most of us have seen very little true trial of our faith compared to many. Noah's trial of his faith certainly was significant. Uh, Can you imagine the impatience that had to be within him? The impatience within his family. When are we going to get out of here, Pop? I mean, after all, the ground is dry. Why are we in here still? I'm driven nuts by the constant bellering of these animals if they were awake. <laughs> and, and so Noah had to continue to convince them that this was God's plan, and just to be patient. Patience is something that uh, many of us are a little weak on, aren't we, sometimes? We're, we're reminded of Job, sometimes referred to as Job the patient. <laughs> Job wasn't always all that patient, but certainly he had A trial to uh, strengthen his his patience. And then, of course, we noted that there were probably some practical reasons why they weren't allowed to leave the ark yet, and and that is that although from the top of the mountain or the side of the mountain, wherever they were, it it might appear that the ground was dry, certainly down in the areas where they would ultimately live, it was still waterlogged, kind of swampy, and there needed to be yet more time for the land to clear. But finally, on the 371st day after the flood began, God spoke. <laughs> what a relief it must have been for Noah. Oh, Lord, thank you. You, you. you have validated my faith. Just think what it might have been. How would he have explained to his family if God never spoke again? Noah believed he would speak, and so he did. And God instructed him, as we read, to leave the ark and to take all the animals with him. I'm sure there was a slight temptation to leave the ark and not take the animals, but obviously they were going to be important and necessary. And so the birds, the animals, the insects were, were to be allowed to leave the ark so that they might repopulate the earth, that they might reproduce and spread out over the land they would radiate in all directions from the land of ararat they would move north and east and south and west and of course the animals would move the insects would move the birds would fly and ultimately there would not be a corner of this earth to which some form of life did not go you think about it even in antarctica you'll discover that there are forms of life most of it insects uh, but other forms of life, too. The little guys in tuxedos, right, (laughs) who live down there. The many varieties of penguins uh, who live in that frozen land as well as other creatures, too. To Noah and his family, if, if they had ever conceived of the idea of living on another planet, it must have seemed like they were walking out onto another planet. It didn't look like the world they had left. Well, for one thing, they were up in the mountains rather than probably down in the valley of Mesopotamia as at least we believe they were before. And of course, the climate was different. Not only was the geography radically transformed by the tremendous movement of, of earth material by the, by, the, by the flood, but the climate was very different. The, the great water vapor canopy was now gone. And and now they would be subject to extreme cold and extreme heat as they would not have been subjected before. Winds of velocities they had never experienced before, great storms that they had never seen before, would now lash the planet and its inhabitants. Certainly, the desolation that they saw around them was a little bit discouraging because the plant life had not, of course, restored itself yet. And I'm sure that the disembarkation from the ark was not as joyful as they might have originally thought it would be. Because although they were entering into the wide world and leaving the confines of the ark, there was a certain coziness to the ark, too. It's sort of like a a person trying to live within the fellowship of believers all the time and never, never really getting out into the world and rubbing shoulders with the unbelievers and, and having an opportunity to, to live the faith that has been implanted within him before the people who don't know that faith. If we're kind of hothouse bread, and, and, and this is the only way we live, uh, sometimes we can't handle it when we get out in the world. I know of of young people who have gone through Christian school and Christian college, and then when they hit the world, they suddenly blew, they fall all apart. Because there wasn't that testing, that, that rubbing shoulders with the world as should have taken place before they got out there, and they weren't really ready for it. Had Noah been able to see a satellite view, of planet Earth both before the flood and after the flood. I think he would have noticed a radical difference. Suddenly now the world is 70% water. That is, the oceans cover 70% of the world, which I don't believe was true before. It was not necessary before because of the watering system that God had developed, which was destroyed at the time of the flood and the waters thus collected in the great ocean basins, which today are necessary for sufficient evaporation to generate the hydrologic cycle as we know it today. And even with the oceans covering as much as the earth as they do today, we have vast deserts, don't we? We have many areas of the world which are are subject to extreme aridity. Large parts of the world are still uninhabitable, or nearly so. I mean, the Sahara Desert, for example, covers an area as great as the 48 states, and the uh, persons per square mile is less than one, (laughs) on the average. Great parts of the Sahara, of course, are totally uninhabited. Uh, There are oases uh, where people do live, and the Tuaregs and other Berber peoples do live in various parts of the Sahara. There are evidences, of course, that the Sahara has had inhabitants more densely, it's been more densely inhabited than it is today because of paintings in the caves and so forth in the mountains, such as in the Ahagar and the Tibesti and some of the other ranges in the central Sahara. It's very probable that not long after the flood that uh, the climate was not as extreme as it is yet today and that vast deserts hadn't yet formed. You think of the Gobi Desert and, and you think of the Atacama Desert and the Nabib Desert. And, and the many regions of the world which are subject to great uh, aridity, uh, those are probably slow in farming. And you think of the Tibetan plateau, which, you know, the average elevation is 15,000 feet. That's pretty chilly, as well as pretty dry. The world just simply wouldn't be as hospitable to the human race as it was before. Now, no one is, finally wouldn't discover all of that right away, but uh, they would discover that it was more hostile than they knew it to be before. Now, as the animals and the humans moved out from the mountain and through the land of Ararat and and out beyond that, uh, they probably multiplied relatively rapidly because there really was no competition. Uh, There weren't enough individual animals to compete with one another for the rather meager at that moment even, food supply, but that which would grow fairly rapidly. And uh, this probably would be true for many, many generations until especially the more prolific creatures would become uh, more numerous. Now, what I'm going to say next is uh, somewhat speculative, but I, I believe is the way it was. As the groups of each kind of animal found their ecological niche... They inbred and uh, developed those traits that were already in their genetic code that allowed them to adapt to their environment. You probably are aware of the fact that mankind is actually one of the most adaptable creatures on planet Earth. Mankind can live in the Arctic and he can live in the tropics. He can live in the desert and he can live in the rainforest. But you'll discover that if you take an animal that's common to the tropics and you move him to the desert or you move it to the, tro- uh, to the Arctic, it will die. When the Crusaders went from France and England down into the Mediterranean world to, to fight the infidel, they often lost a large number of their horses on the way, but the horses couldn't take the change in climate, the change in food supply and the <laughs> kinds of things that came along their way. And so they died. But but people are, are very adaptable. Animals had to learn to adapt to their environment, whereas the environment before was probably relatively uniform worldwide. It was no longer so and would become more severe as time passed. Isolation of groups and environmental extremes would allow traits to develop within various groups as they separated one from the other. It's very important for us to realize that some of the principles and precepts upon which the theory of evolution have been built are true. It's that the theory that interprets them is wrong. And its explanation of how it all came about and what the ultimate result is incorrect. But it is possible for, the genes within a creature to produce a wide variety of phenotypes, of ultimate physiological forms. And it's possible for the genetic code to be modified through time. We see this. And and of course mankind can force it to happen. This does not mean that evolution has occurred. It simply means that variety does take uh, take place naturally. The variation never crossed the kind as described in Genesis. Uh, Let me read the verse to you again. You don't need to turn to it if you don't wish to, but Genesis one twenty-eight. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing in the earth. Backing up to verse 25. And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God does not there define kind. And I think it's important for us to not nail kind or or, or require kind to define modern specific species. The human being is a good example of the possibility to vary. We've had riots in the United States because there are differences between human beings. What did Noah look like? What did Noah's uh, wife look like? What did his sons and his three daughters-in-law look like physically? <clears throat> I think they look very similar one to the other. They, they lived in a common culture. I think that uh, racially we'd have all ca- classified them as one particular race. But as you know, today the human race, the, the human uh, being, is divided into three major races, Caucasian, Negroid, and Mongoloid, and also two or three minor races, capoid, australoid, and some other smaller groups. How come? Did God create three Adams and three Eves? Were there three Noahs and three Noah's wives, one black, one white, and one mongoloid? No. It's obvious that within the genetic code of Adam and Eve, of Noah and his wife, was the ability of the human race to vary as the human race varies. Now today there's some pretty stupid thinking out there. To me it's insane for some to say, as they do argue, that the three human races evolved separately that the black race evolved, the white race evolved, and the mongoloid race evolved, and that they evolved parallel but separately, and yet they are totally capable of interbreeding today. Now, that's absurd. It's insane. (laughs) I mean, the mathematical possibilities of that are so ridiculous that the zeros would fill this room. And yet some believe that. Some who call themselves scientists believe that. Now, many others, of course, don't view it that way. They believe the human race evolved during, through one line, and that one line has variegated. Well, that's simply a misinterpretation of what really happened. Obviously, the blacks, the whites, the mongoloids, the capoids, the australoids, whatever groups you want to call, have their genetic code based in Noah and his wife. If the bones of Andre the Giant You all know who he is, right? You've probably seen him. He's been in the movies, and I hear he's been a wrestler. I I don't watch wrestling, but I've seen him in the movies. And the bones of Tom Thumb were found in the rocks. Do you suppose that modern paleontologists would say that, oh, they're just varieties of the same species? No way. They would say these are not even the same genus, let alone the same species. I mean, look at them. They're so different. The one's this tall, little bitty bones. The other guy, you know, obviously they're different. What about the Watusis of Africa today, where the average female is six foot, the average male is six foot six? You know, tall, slender. And what about the pygmy? You know, little bitty guys like this. And that's the way they are. They're not some kind of a, a, a strange uh, creature uh, in the sense that only once, once in a while you have a tall, thin one, and once in a while you have a short, little one? No, they, they, there's a whole race of these people. Well, what about dwarfs? I mean, all kinds of things you could talk about. And if you were to find those bones in the rocks, somebody would say, oh, this is this species, and this is this genus, and they'd try to show how they evolved. And they'd show one is ancestral to the other. But we know that's not true. The Pygmy comes from Noah, the Watusi comes from Noah, the darkest Bantu comes from Noah, and, and the lightest Scandinavian comes from Noah, the Eskimo comes from Noah. Uh, and the, uh, the Indian of the Amazon Rainforest, have you ever looked at, at an Indian of the Amazon Rainforest side by side with an Indian that comes just a few hundred miles away from the Andes? They physically look very, very different. The one is short and squatty and very broad shouldered and heavy in arms and heavy in torso, the Amazon and Indian. Whereas the one in the mountain tends to be short too, but it's, it's more stringy, more like the American Indian up here. Why? They all came from the same genetic code. That capacity to vary to that extent was in the code that was built in the DNA that was built into Noah and his wife by God. So what about the animals? Same difference. Do we suppose that on the ark there was a tiger? And that tiger looks exactly like the tigers today and a lion that looks exactly like the lions today. Well, I'm not arguing that's not so, but I'm saying that it's very, very possible that there was a cat on the ark from which all the cats we know today in the world came. That's not evolution. That's just the ability to vary that God built within the genetic code that has been misinterpreted by the scientists as evolution because they want to remove God from the picture. What's interesting is to note that there are certain barriers that have never been crossed and they have no record of their ever having been crossed. There's no record of a dog-like creature evolving into a cat-like creature. They try to say that dinosaurs evolved into birds, but that's absurd. Just because they find archaeopteryx in the rock, which happens to be a feathered creature that has teeth and a bit of a tail, that makes him descended from a dinosaur? How in the world did did you get that first lizard who tried to fly? That first lizard who had a feather? I mean, was he somehow somehow at a greater advantage than other lizards? Of course not. He was at a greater disadvantage, so the likelihood of him surviving is much less. It, It just doesn't make sense. And what's interesting beyond that is that the fossil records show that there is no such thing as a transition fossil anywhere. There never has been in the fossil records a, quote, missing link. Never. Never has there been a creature that is shown to be halfway between this and that, and thus is the link between them. And they argue, well, the reason there are no missing links is that there aren't enough uh, fossils out there, because fossil formation is relatively rare, and therefore the chances are relatively small. Well, that's a cop-out, because you're just as likely to have a transition fossil out there as you are to have any other fossils, because you have to have millions of whatever you have. Uh, in order to get there. The the absolute dearth of any kind of a transition fossil simply means one thing. There are no such things. But if you're sold and completely committed to a particular belief pattern, you just ignore that. You're blind in that area because that's the choice that one makes. Let's look at uh, verse 20. Genesis 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the the soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains... Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And you and I depend upon that every day, don't we? We expect the sun to come up when, well, either after we get up (laughs) or before we get up, right? Uh, That's what we expect every day. And, and very few of us go to bed at night and say, oh, Lord, please let the sun come up tomorrow, right? We just expect that. We may say, please let me get up tomorrow, but, but we expect the sun to come up because God has promised that that will be so until, of course, he blows the final whistle. This passage describes Noah's expression of thanks to God and God's response God does respond. Sometimes we're not sure he has responded, and most of us probably have never heard God's audible response, but God does respond to the sincere prayer of the heart of his believer, of his child. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book, He is There and He is Not Silent. Sometimes we think that he is silent, but he is not silent. It's sometimes that we're deaf. That's the problem. We're not listening. That's often the problem. We spend all our time in prayer talking and none listening. This is the first reference to an altar in Scripture. The Hebrew word here means place of sacrifice. It didn't have to be, uh, you know, a golden altar like we think of the altar of incense that was later put in the tabernacle in the temple. It just simply had to be a place of sacrifice, as simple as it certainly was in Noah's day. Noah took the unpaired animal from amongst the clean animals, and he offered each one to God, a single cow, a single sheep a single goat, whatever all these animals were. He offered them up to the Lord as thanksgiving. Now the world had been purged. A great flood had swept over the earth and it had wiped out mankind as well as the bulk of animal life on the earth. And yet sin still remained in this planet. It was, as C.S. Lewis would call it, still the silent planet, because the prince of the power of the air was still here. And in the heart of Noah, and in the heart of his wife, and his three sons, and the three daughters-in-law, sin still resided. And we're going to see, as we move on, how that sin would manifest itself very, very quickly. And so blood yet had to be shed to demonstrate the vileness of sin. Again, why is blood sacrificed? Why does God require the death of an animal and its blood to be poured forth as a symbol of atonement, so that mankind would realize the seriousness of sin? It's not exciting. It's not thrilling. It's not even desirable to slay an animal, to offer its life on an altar. But that blood flowing would remind Noah and his family that sin is terrible in the sight of God, and it requires a great sacrifice. And, of course, that blood would simply be the symbol of the greatest sacrifice that God would make in sending his son thousands of years later. So even as a new beginning was made, the symbol of that ultimate sacrifice that Christ would make on the cross would be the first thing that Noah would do. Now, it was an act of faith. Think about it for a minute. He was sacrificing the clean animals. Now, the clean animals were the animals most desirable to man. And it was an act of faith faith to, to slay one of those animals because there were only seven of them. And even though it was an odd one, not one of the three pairs, it still was a sacrifice. It was an act of faith. And yet, of course, I think Noah willingly... And joyfully did it as praise to his God. Now, in verse 21 of this passage, we have another, what I believe is an anthropomorphic description that is viewed from man's point of view, description of God's response. God doesn't have a nose as you and I have a nose. And God doesn't go around sniffing things like you and I sniff things, even as poorly as most of us are able to smell. God is not a barbecue freak. The meaning here is that God was pleased with the act of faith by Noah in making this sacrifice to God and praying his intercessory prayer. This was pleasing to God, and it's expressed in this way, a way in which man could understand, to which man could relate. God's response to this humble, obedient act of, God, uh, of, of Noah reveal. <laughs> pardon me. I, w- I woke up this morning, and my world was going all around. It was going like this, you know, and I'm... Pretty well straightened out, but uh, get my tongue tangled up once in a while. It's still going around. (laughs) God was pleased with this act of faith, and I think Noah's act of sacrifice can be interpreted not only as a great act of thanksgiving to God for his preservation, for the ark of salvation, but also. He was interceding for the newly reconstituted earth. Oh God, as we go out across this planet, may we be a different people. I'm putting words in his mouth, but certainly you would think that would be in his heart and in his mind as he made his sacrifice to God. And God responds with emotion. God is an emotional being. Sometimes we forget that. We almost depict God as, as, as an austere being sitting up there with kind of a tight lips, you know, looking down upon us in, in a very judgmental way. We sometimes look upon Jesus Christ as he is portrayed in the Sistine Chapel coming in final judgment with, with you know, fire and brimstone or something like that. And we forget that God is a God who laughs, who smiles, who has joy, who has anger, who has... He never has fear, of course, but, but He has emotions as we have emotions. Why do we have emotions? Because we have been made in the image of God. So we have emotions. Our emotions are very imperfect compared to His, though, of course. God's emotions are perfect in their justice and perfect in their, in their mercy, perfect in their expression of love. Ours are not. We get angry when we shouldn't. We laugh sometimes when we shouldn't. I'm reminded of the cartoon some of you certainly have seen. It's showing the audience from the screen of a movie theater. And everybody in the audience is crying except one person, and he's laughing. (laughs) You know? Sometimes our emotions are not right. In fact, they're often not right, as... Dr. Dobson says, our emotions, can we trust them? And basically the answer is no, we cannot. Can we trust God's emotions? <clears throat> Very much so, because God's expression of emotion is perfect, not distorted by sin as are ours. Whenever in the Old Testament we read about God's people making a sacrifice that produces a a soothing aroma, a sweet-smelling savor before God, that quieting or pleasing effect that this implies is the result of the fact that that act is an appropriation of the God-given symbol of atonement. God is pleased that man is, is, is acting in accordance with his will and with his declaration and, and is employing that symbol of atonement. Now, we have to know that, of course, the people of the Old Testament didn't know yet about the Incarnate One. Yes, there were prophecies of Emmanuel. There were prophecies of the suffering servant, that so many uh, weren't able to understand as Isaiah gave the prophecy. And, of course, the Scripture tells us that the prophets themselves gave forth prophecies that they didn't even understand. And yet, the symbol of atonement was as real for them as it is for us. Because although we live in time and we live in history and we look forward and we look backward, God sees the whole thing from the beginning to the end. And the Scripture tells us that Jesus Christ was the lamb slain from when? The foundation of the world. Jesus Christ's blood was sacrificed as far as God's plan was concerned before he ever even created the world. And thus the symbol of atonement was simply uh, something which looked forward to that which we look back to. And as they employed that symbol, their faith, we're told, produced righteousness or was accounted to them, imputed to them. Righteousness was imputed to them because of their act of faith. God's justice was satisfied because of what Christ would do as we see it, but because of what Christ had already done in the eyes of God, Himself. And what was God's response? I will never again destroy this earth as I have done it in the great flood. The reason that God gives seems a little strange, does it not? Let let me read that again. In, In verse 21, God says, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, that seems like rather strange reasoning. Why had God just destroyed the world? Because of sin. And now it seems like he's saying, because of sin, I won't destroy the world. That's what it seems like. It seems like God's thinking has gotten mixed up. Well, rather than me trying to explain it to you, let me read what Kyle and Delich, in their commentary uh, say in what... I believe, uh, is a good answer to this apparent contradiction. They say this. It was not because the thoughts and desires of the human heart are evil that God would not smite any more every living thing, that is to say, would not exterminate them judicially, but because they are evil from his youth up, because evil is innate in man, And for that reason, he needs the forbearance of God. In other words, God knew that man was born in sin, had no other option but to live in sin, until, of course, he placed his faith in God. And therefore, God gave his mercy. Also, because in the offering of the righteous Noah, not only were thanks presented for past protection and entreaty for further care, but the desire of man was expressed to remain in fellowship with God and to procure divine favor. Certainly that was in Noah's prayer. Certainly Noah prayed, O oh God, keep us in the ark of salvation, so to speak. Keep us close to you, that our descendants will not go the way of the antediluvian world. The acknowledgment of human sinful nature and God's counteracting mercy I think are more clearly portrayed for us even in a passage that's not in your outline, but I'd like to turn for it to it for a moment. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Notice how it begins. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now that's God's acknowledgment of our innate sinfulness, of the fact that we were born in sin. And that's, in effect, what God is saying in Genesis. Because man is sinful from his youth up, I will grant mercy, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too, All formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's an acknowledgment that we all were in that same condition. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, Heat and cold, summer and winter, springtime and harvest, all would continue to come, it says in Genesis. And here we read, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come, he might show surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. If he were to destroy the world again, he couldn't have done this. He couldn't have displayed his mercy in Christ Jesus as he had chosen to do. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship." created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them." To me, these two passages are so closely parallel that they explain from the two Testaments the same truth. God knows our sinful condition, and yet God's mercy is extended to us in allowing us to know that the sun will rise and set every day as it has before, and Christ is there for our appropriation as salvation, as our Savior, that we might not have to perish either temporally or eternally, as those before the flood did, because they rejected the grace of God, preached through Noah, and they died in their sin. God emphasized this promise in the brief poem that we read there a couple of times already. Yes? It's the NIV translates that for as a concessive clause, even though every inclination, although it admits in the in the marginal note that for is the correct, the most literal translation. Now, wouldn't that still apply, though, in the same way? Yeah. yeah. I think it's supporting what you're saying. Oh, good. <laughs> 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 you'll <laughs> good <laughs> thanks daily monthly yearly processes of life on earth have continued and will continue without significant interruption until when that event prophesied by many prophets called the Day of the Lord. Things will change. At that point, we believe, and at that point, it'll all be over. Let's, let's look at that passage that uh, seems to rather graphically refer to that in Second Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, and that with the Lord, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. But the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing or willing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Notice it doesn't say specifically world. Len, that is right there, isn't it? I mean, that's not the word for world there, is it? I didn't look that up, but uh, I, I think... That's referring specifically to the planet here, and it's not just talking about uh, the cosmos, the human uh, element here. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise... We're looking for, a new, for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Isn't that exciting? To think that one day we will be able to dwell in a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There will be none there who stand for the evil one. The evil one will not be there trying to trip us up. Uh, There will not be the kinds of things we see in our society which are noted as unjust, unmerciful, acts of violence and lust and and evil, because we will be in a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Hallelujah. Oh, okay. (laughs) Amen. Uh, You know, it's really exciting to think about that. And, and it makes us long for it, I believe. Uh, y- you know, sometimes we think of the fact that only as we get older do we really long for the new heaven and the new earth. But I think the closer we walk with the Lord, the more we long for the new heaven and the new earth because we want God's will perfectly to be exhibited. And we get tired of the influence of the enemy and, and how pervasive it, it seems to us. We live by His promises, though, that the gates of hell will not prevail, and the church will stand, and the church will ultimately triumph. But this earth will be gone one day. That does not at all violate God's promise in Genesis, because notice how that that poem begins. Yes, begins. While the earth remains, it says, These things will be so. And so what we read in Peter is the no longer remaining of the earth. It will be annihilated. It will be destroyed. It will be gone. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And we really can look forward to that, I think, with great excitement. Finding that, you know, this early, in, in the story of Genesis helps us to see the unity and the continuity of Scripture. I've, I've mentioned this before, but I've run into people who, who just don't think that the Old Testament has anything to say that relates to them today. That, you know, they only study the New Testament. It's sort of like the Old Testament is just a kind of dry old history. But when you study it, you discover it just comes alive with the truths of the New Testament over and over and over again through every book. And as you study the Old Testament, suddenly the New Testament has new life to it because you understand the background. What is Revelation without Genesis? How do we understand who Jesus was, what a Messiah was, what the need for atonement was, unless we know the accounts of the Old Testament and and, uh, the the tabernacle and the temple and, and, and the atonement, the day of atonement, all of these things. They just dovetail so perfectly. And to think, some people actually believe that just plain old people wrote this from their own little pea brains, and they came up with this unity that is unheard of in, in any... I mean, you go look at a collection of writings someplace. I and mean, we read the encyclopedia or something else where a bunch of authors has, have put it together. And, and you try to find that kind of unity where the same uh, viewpoint is, is seen throughout the whole. He just won't do it. You know, it's, it's just impossible. And, of course, this constantly validates the authority and the inspiration of this word. And it's important for us to believe that because otherwise these stories just are hard to, to take, hard to believe, hard to understand. The other day I saw a little glimpse on television of uh, uh, of a little video that had been done on Noah's Ark and the search for it, and then another one having to do with... Um, the children of Israel crossing the Red Sea and all of this. And there was a rabbi who came on who says, well, of course, this didn't really happen. These were stories invented by writers in Jerusalem so people would believe that their God was stronger than the gods of the other people around them. I thought, oh, this guy doesn't begin to understand the very book he purports to be a rabbi of. He probably doesn't read it much. Uh, You know, he's a scholar, a scholar. Remember, Paul was accused of being a person that much reading had made him mad, right? (laughs) Well, uh, that may not have applied to Paul, but it sure does apply to some people, I think. Well, I think that uh, we'll stop at that point and we'll just pick up with the next outline next week.